Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Michael. Glad to be here with you, man. Thanks. Thanks for making the time. My pleasure. Yeah. I've, uh, I've imagined having you on the pod for a while. Well, you have a powerful imagination because here we are. <laughs> making things happen. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, so tell us, tell us a bit about yourself. Who are you? Oh, I don't know, man. Just a wandering yogi trying to figure it out. One day at a time, get closer to the truth. If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) If my answers scare you, Vincent, you should cease asking scary questions. Mm. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. So I met you during, it was HLC three, right? Yeah. Or two? I think it was three. I I think think it was was my second time through the course. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We sat in the front row. You were across the other side of the classroom. Mm-hmm. I remember it well. Yeah. That's uh, at the Czech Institute, in case uh, anyone's catching up on that. Yeah. For me, HLC3, <clears throat> the second time around was like cooler because I'd already done it. So I didn't have any pressure of like hoarding information. I just wanted to like let it wash into me. Mm-hmm. So I was like really relaxed during that course. Mm-hmm. And that was. Was it Angie who taught that? Or was um, it Nicole? No, it was Angie and Paul, I believe. If Paul. Not, if not just Paul. I think the reason I came was because Paul was teaching it. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I think it was Angie got sick. She was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And she had to step out for a day. And Paul came in, mm. if I remember. And it was the first time she'd been sick in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. So, Yeah. And then I came to study with you at the tribe. Yeah, you came to the tribe intensive up in uh, Topanga Canyon. Mm-hmm. I guess that was last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, I was really happy that you you came. And I really loved watching you over the course of the three days. 
just be willing to follow instruction and lean into uncomfortable edges and pop. You know, mm. well, I saw you pop open like. You did? Yeah, over the course of the weekend, it's, you know, when you're in the front of the room, you you're, you see those things. Mm. Your attention as a, as a participant is constantly directed, like, to the man in front of you or to the meditation or whatever. But, you know, a facilitator is able to see the whole room mm-hmm. and see the subtle shifts in each participant's kind of being over the course of a couple of days. Mm-hmm. You know, some people come in kind of tight, kind of nervous, kind of, mm, I don't know, I'm really buying into this. Um, but you just watch this embodied softening over the course of the 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 intensive mm-hmm. and it's uh it's very rewarding and i just remember you sharing some of the things that you you know gained insights about and it's difficult i think you would probably agree to describe what it is we even did mm. at, a, at a retreat like that i mean of course there's a lot of breath work there's a lot of meditation there's a lot of partner practices are a lot of introspection but a lot of waking up really early to a gong yep <laughs> it's very monastic style mm-hmm. but it's not so much the things that we do <clears throat> it's the states that we access while we're doing the things that we do mm. you know, deep states of concentration present moment awareness sensitivity to your own emotional reality and the feeling states of the people around you Mm. and so you know our intensives are an opportunity to kind of recruit those muscles and then when the retreat ends now you go out into the world and you have some new kind of tools in the toolbox yep and so everybody leaves those intensives different than they showed up and the, the work is very rewarding yeah i feel a deep soul calling to continue to offer it mm. you know i think i probably shared at the intensive and you know me and but my, my mission is to offer um contemplative practice meditation um Cultivating sensitivity uh, bringing about a transcendent experience um, to specifically men who might turn their nose at those topics mm-hmm. because I think that in pop culture, there's maybe this view of meditation as like man bun, granola eater, you know, burning man, hippy dippy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of guys, you know, like tough guys are very quick to just say like, that's not me, you know, but that's not my experience of meditation at all. And I think anybody who applies themselves diligently to the practice will find that it calls forth and requires a real warrior spirit like 
it's a battle to sit still and wrangle your own mind. Yeah, <laughs> you right. Know? Control there's, the wandering elephant. Yeah, there's nothing uh, yeah. passive about it. It requires mm-hmm. heroic effort, determination, mm-hmm. discipline. You know, uh, it's totally worth doing. But I offer the you know test to any man who tells me or or feels that spiritual practice is just lightweight. You know, fluff. Yeah, if it's fluff, if it's fluff, then go on a three-day retreat mm-hmm. and see what that requires of you. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look back through the ages, you know the monastics, the warriors were, you know, the monks were the badasses, and I'm on a mission to make meditation badass again because I think it is badass, and I think the more people, especially men nowadays, who would summon the courage to just sit still with themselves. And uh, understand themselves at deeper levels and heal, you know, traumas that they're carrying, mm-hmm. the world will be a, a safer, stronger, more beautiful place. Agreed. Yeah, because it comes down to the individual. I mean, people nowadays are so woke that they want to topple capitalism or transform the entire government. But let's start a little smaller than that. You know, let's take a look at the man in the mirror and see. Right. Um, are you taking good care of yourself? Mm. You know, are you aware of how you're feeling? Are you aware of how you feel influences your behavior and maybe unskillful ways? Mm. You know, if you want to change the world, you can. But it starts with you. It starts with you. Yeah. Yeah. Did you hear Paul's podcast with um, Dr. Douglas Brackman? Didn't catch it. He he wrote a book called Driven. Oh, actually, I was on his podcast, uh, Doctor. Oh, Doug. that's right. Yeah, yeah, you were. I heard that one. I yeah, it was that. a great chat. But uh, the mm-hmm. day that I was on, Doctor Doug was, I forget why he he wasn't there. So it was just me and his. Uh, I don't know if it's his wife or his assistant or what, but we had a good chat. Yeah, but I didn't I didn't catch Paul's podcast to your question. No. Okay, that's where I found his pod first, and then I heard you on his pod as well. Cool, cool. Yeah, and he talks about. How he's got, he's worked with all sorts of military badasses, you know, mm-hmm. Navy SEALs and whatnot, very decorated men. And many of them have told him that the hardest thing they've ever done is to sit their asses on that cushion. That's it, man. 20, 25 minutes, 30 That's minutes. That's it. Just sit. Yeah, you know, a guy gets <clears throat> to a point where another round of sparring, another marathon, yeah, another, you know, deadlift PR. It's not so challenging anymore. Not to say that you should stop doing those things altogether, but I think a man who would reach his fullness must be constantly seeking out his edge. Yes. And um, for a lot of people, the edge, the authentic edge, is sitting still. Mm. And it's very uncomfortable to do that, you know, initially. But as you know, on the other side of the uncomfortable thing, is a more liberated, free, open version of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's. I, I work with a lot of athletes who will give me speeches about how motivated they are and how dedicated they are to their sport. But mm-hmm. frequently when I see, excuse me, when I see that type of mindset, what is illuminated to me is that 
this athlete is simply reinforcing what they're good at, mm -hmm. right? I mean, when you've been an athlete your whole life, whether you're a cyclist or whatever your practice is, going hard on a bike, that's the easy part. Yeah, that's it gets to a point. It's, yeah. There was some point in that athlete's development where going hard was a challenge, mm -hmm. but they pushed through it, they pushed through it, they pushed through it, and now they've just baseline going hard, so it's no longer an edge. Right. So you gotta seek out your edge. I work with athletes too, and I'll ask them, have you ever had a, an athletic performance where you were just crushing it? You couldn't, you could do no wrong, you know, the flow. Every athlete knows it. It's like the zone. Yeah. And yeah, they all say, I have, yeah. I say, okay, do you think that that performance had more to do with your physical preparations or was it a some kind of mental state that you just tapped into? Mm. It was a mental state. Okay, so what percentage of your training do you dedicate to the training of the mind? Uh, none. None. <laughs> or, you know, well, I do a five-minute meditation practice every day. Yeah. I go to the gym for three hours. Yeah. But you just admitted that your your peak performance has more to do with your mind than your body. Mm. So your training should reflect that. Mm. It makes sense when you think about it. The zone is high concentration. Mm. It's such high concentration on the task at hand that there's no leftover bandwidth for self-referencing. You're so intimately engaged with what you're doing that there's no leftover attention to create the self that's doing it. To witness. To witness, yeah. Mm. So that's a state that can be, you know, <coughs> yogis live in that state. Concentration is one of the three primary skills of the meditator. Concentration, clarity, and equanimity. Concentration is a skill that can be developed. And concentration is a meta skill. When you when you cultivate high concentration on your meditation cushion and then the bell goes off, you don't just the concentration doesn't just go away. Mm -hmm. That's with you now, and you can just pour that into whatever you're doing. It's like when you go into the gym and train your muscles, you get strong and you leave the gym, you're still strong. Right. You know? Right. That's what concentration is for the meditator. So Mm. Strong concentration makes you better at whatever it is that you're doing. Writing a business plan, raising a son, tending to a garden, riding your bike, mm. shooting free throws, whatever. You know, if you're all the way in it, you'll be better at it. But isn't there a paradox in the idea that when you're meditating, part of the practice is to witness your own mind mm -hmm. and remove by just by the act of witnessing what your mind is doing, mm -hmm. your mind's minding, mm -hmm. you're developing the ability to to witness that mind. And then that's the first stage. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is how I think about it. Mm -hmm. So you watch what the mind does. You watch it goes here. It distracts yourself here. It's got this itch. It wants to think about this girl or these boobs or sure. this fancy car or whatever mm -hmm. movie is playing at the moment. And you're learning to witness that. And so then the first step is just witnessing because mm -hmm. when you detach and you witness, then what you're doing is you're, you're learning to dissociate from that. You're learning that's not you. Mm -hmm. And over time, you learn to become more skilled with your concentration. And when those movies or those thoughts come up, you, you shush them or you quiet them or you let them be and you bring your attention back to what the, the task is. The of concentration. Right. Yeah, that's it. You just described what one of my teachers would call metacognitive capacity mm. so the capacity to yes get that bird's eye view on your own mind and that is 
we could subdivide. I, I outlined the three skills of meditation, concentration, clarity, and equanimity. Mm-hmm. Concentration could be divided into metacognition, direction, and intensification. So initially, yeah, you, f- you find this new vantage point where the untrained individual is, there's this illusion that there's no separation between themselves and their thoughts. They are, they are their thoughts. Mm-hmm. That, that incessant commentary that's going on behind your eyes all the time is who you are. But as you start to sit long enough, you start to attenuate to the fact that you can notice those thoughts, which begs the question, what am I? Who is the thinker? Who's the thinker? Who is the observer? So as that space starts to lengthen between the observer and the thought elaboration, mm-hmm. the opportunity arises to direct the mind through intention, mm-hmm. to be more intentional with the thoughts that you allow to perseverate in your head. Because most people would agree that the majority of the problems that we're dealing with are not actually based in the present moment. Our minds are so powerful that they can pull us out of the present moment and create some fantasy story of some doomsday future or some terrible past that has an effect on our emotions here in this moment. Yep. So the flip side of that coin is that you can incline the mind toward positivity. You can learn to intentionally think thoughts that make you feel good or Mm. you can peacefully abide in non-conceptual stillness and like you said just kind of zap a thought the moment it arises and then they just stop coming and that is deeply relaxing Mm. and i work with a lot of successful individuals entrepreneurs and you know men who have done the thing they set out to do and I think oftentimes people who are called to a deep spiritual inquiry occupy two populations. One population is people who are really suffering. You know, life is, has become very hard to manage. And, um, you know, we're talking about trauma, addiction, you know, depression, like really things are so bad that, oh my God, I guess I could, I, 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 I'll try. Meditation. It's so bad that I'll try meditation. I'll try anything. Yeah, I'll try anything. (laughs) And then at the other end of the spectrum are people who got the thing that they thought they wanted. Mm -hmm. You know, they worked hard, relentlessly towards some goal. And then they got it. And it was cool for a little while, but not that long. It didn't bring them. And so then they they found another goal. And they they hustled toward it and they get it. And that's cool, but not for that long. And then after you do that enough times, you're just like, well, what the fuck? Right. What's really going on here? So you can learn how to relax. You know, the reason I brought it up is because a lot of these highly functioning individuals that I work with, they're so diligent that they don't know how to relax. And relaxation is a skill that takes practice. And just because you're not doing anything doesn't necessarily mean that you're relaxing. Mm-hmm. You know, so through the practice of meditation, you can learn how to cultivate an embodied state of deep, deep, deep rest. And you find yourself in this space where, oh, everything I'm working toward is available always and only right now. What what do we want? What do we really want? If you boil it, it all down to the lowest common denominator, 
freedom. Mm. Freedom will not come in some at some future point. It has come now. Freedom will be tasted now or not at all. Right. And nothing needs to change in your life for you to be free mm. other than your perspective. Mm. Well, I would add to that that in order for a person to really experience freedom, part of that evolution of the individual, please tell me if you agree or disagree with this, but we trap ourselves with our choices, right? We marry the wrong woman. We buy a car that we can't afford. We buy a house we can't afford. Mm -hmm. We work to please other people to impress them with our whatever. Sure. Right? And these acts imprison us. I mean, this is like Jocko Willink's lesson, right? Is I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like being an adult requires absolute authority and responsibility for your actions. Absolute responsibility. I dig that. Right? Yeah. It's like you got to look at how you dug this hole for yourself. Yeah. Right? I think that's the spiritual path right there. Mm. Claiming absolute and total responsibility for yourself, for your well-being, and for your happiness. Mm -hmm. No one will save you. Because if you have 200K in credit card debt, that's... You might be able to sit there on a park bench and think you're free, <laughs> but really you're not. You've enslaved yourself. Yeah. Right. By borrowing too much money. Yeah. And that would boil down, I think, to one's values. Mm -hmm. You know, your values dictate your behavior. And if you value the opinion of others, then you're likely to rack up a whole lot of debt, buying things you can't afford or don't need or don't even necessarily like to impress people that you don't know or don't necessarily don't like, you know. But if freedom, if you if you get clear, that's why it's so important. You know, when you sit still, these are the kind of questions that come up. And these questions are uncomfortable. So most people don't sit still. But questions like, what are your values? Mm. What what are your values? What is your life's highest value? And does your day-to-day -day life reflect that? If someone was to follow you around for a day, would they be able to deduce what your values are based on how you live? That's a great question. Or would you have to tell them? Because right. if you have to tell them, then your values are an idea. They don't, if they don't live inside of your flesh and bone, then they're not real. Mm. So we have to, we each must decide what our values are and then architect a life that reflects them. And that's living in integrity. And that is, you know, that's wealth. Mm -hmm. So wealth is, is not a, a number in the bank account. Wealth is enjoying your day-to-day -day life. So I want to go back to the moment when the elephant begins to wander or when you have the emotions come up, when you feel one of the concepts that I learned at the tribe retreat was just simply the focus on internal friction that we have in our lives, those moments, those points of friction that we have and learning to recognize those. Mm -hmm. And then same process, you witness it first then inevitably you're working towards resolution of that friction if you're if you're working towards that point of stillness. And I think your meditation teacher, Shenzhen Young, has an expression. It's something like there's only three tenths of the second before the terrorists take the, terrorists the building. Take the building. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I said that today in a session with one of my guys. Hmm. It's true. It's like um, something happens in life. Uh, it's uncomfortable and then 
there's no decision, there's no free will at all. You just say something that you regret saying or feel something that you regret saying. It's just, we're just going through life on autopilot, reacting to um, the conditions of our lives rather than responding. But the capacity to respond to life only comes if you can cultivate that metacognitive capacity mm. to place your finger on the veto button in that three-tenths of a second before you say that thing or do that thing or whatever. Mm. But that's the practice of starting to cultivate some level of mastery over your own mind. Because it's a cliche, but it's true. The mind is a cruel master, but a great servant. And if you would seek to become master of your own mind, you have to sit with it. You have to spend time with it without distracting yourself from it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like if you want to train a puppy, you got to spend time with that thing. Yeah. You got to spend time. So that's the practice. And initially, um, I think the, the base skill that needs to be developed for fruitful meditation practice is concentration. The same way that I know you're a fitness guy, so you wouldn't bring somebody off the street on day one into a program and put 225 on the squat rack and throw it on their back. You know, you would want to establish some foundation of core strength. Yeah. And then you can build upon that foundation of core strength by eventually loading patterns. Mm -hmm. But you don't start there. So concentration is, is that foundation that we build upon. And concentration is an effortful practice. You remember when we were on the tribe retreat, I was encouraging you guys, try harder. Mm -hmm. Try harder. Somebody came up to me and said, I never, no one ever told me try harder during meditation practice. Yeah. I mean, he dug it, but it's like, yeah, it's, you have to like really summon some resolution mm -hmm. to stay connected to the object of concentration. And then eventually you stabilize concentration and then the practice to become, becomes to loosen mm -hmm. that grip on the mind. And eventually, you know, the culmination of the path is don't do anything at all. Don't do anything. Don't right. meditate. Don't do anything. Put down the sword. Put down the sword. Put down the shield. Just mm. don't do anything. But you you don't you can't start there. <laughs> you know? It's the equivalent of starting with yeah, exactly. 400 pounds on the bar. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. But it's like if you engage this training of the mind, then the mind becomes well trained and you don't have to worry about it so much. Mm. You know, it's gonna you plant these seeds and then the seeds start to blossom and then the practice takes on a life of its own. Yeah. Shinzen would often say that at a certain point on the path, there's a figure ground reversal where initially your meditation is something that you do during the course of your day. You know, you set that 25 minute sacred space and you do your meditation and then you fuck off meditation. You don't, you don't worry. You don't think about your mind anymore and you do the rest of your day. Yeah. Then you keep doing that. Then maybe you do a retreat and you start to cultivate these skills. And now this figure around reversal starts to happen where now your day begins to unfold through the view of your unbroken meditation. Mm -hmm. So whether you're on the pillow or not, you're practicing. You're in meditation. Yeah, it's like it infiltrates the lens through which you view life. Infiltrates is a good word, Colby, and that's that's my experience. It's like this blossom of the Dharma just starts to open in you 
whether you want to or not. <laughs> it's like a beautiful virus that infects you in the best way. Right. <laughs> yeah, I've had the experience a few times in the past few years where I've had that the analogy also, I think, that Shenzhen uses is that your mind is like a wandering elephant, or maybe that's your analogy. No, it's definitely not mine. It's not Shenzhen's either. It's uh, okay. it's from a Tibetan teaching uh, about the cultivation of concentration called the elephant path. And there's this whole allegory of, you know, wrangling the elephant, eating uh -huh. the elephant. And eventually, there's like nine pictures. There's nine stages of concentration. Okay. And I think in the last picture... Um, the elephant is white. It starts, it's black, and in the end, it's white. And the individual is riding the elephant backwards. He doesn't even need to see where it's going because the elephant will take him there. Okay, cool. The whip. There's also the ox herding pictures, which are a really cool allegory <clears throat> for the path. But it um, ox herding. The ox herd. Yeah, the ten okay. ox herding pictures. There is from a Zen tradition. Okay. At one point, I wish I could remember all of them. Shinzen has a great teaching on them on YouTube. Mm. But at one point in the Oxford pictures, it says, the whip and rope are necessary. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's that that's that firm resolution to establish concentration. Because your mind will want to wander, but you can't let it. That's right. the whip and the rope. But then eventually the whip and the rope can be put down. Yeah. And once the mind is well trained, you can start to relax. Yeah. Just like the puppy that grows up into an unruly dog. If it's not trained, it's pissing on the carpet and fighting other dogs or... Yeah running in traffic or whatever, all the things it'll do. Yeah. Yeah. But if you took the time to train that puppy, mm -hmm. then that puppy, as it grows, can make your life so much easier. Mm -hmm. You know, it can fetch your slippers <laughs> or it can you know, do chores for you. It can protect your house. Yep. The only difference is training. Mm. You know, so just train. Mm. So um, tell me about your path of study in addition to working with Shenzhen. How long did you work with him for? I went through the the teacher training that Shenzhen developed called Unified Mindfulness. That was probably three or four years ago. Okay. And then I studied with him for probably five or six years prior to that. I would go and sit on retreat with him uh, twice a year. He would come to California and go down to Palos Verdes and host a two-week retreat. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's really something powerful that happens when you sit in a room of other individuals who are, you know, committed to their practice and you're being led by an individual who has, you know, dedicated their life to practice. Mm -hmm. It's like the analogy that I developed and you see this with like Indian yogis and stuff. When you, when you learn how to get really, really, really still, like really you start to just like, I think, sit a little heavier in the fabric of space-time and you create a little hill and then people just move towards you <laughs> it's like it just happens very organically huh. like if you look at a guy like Shinzen he didn't set out to be a spiritual teacher you know and the way I see it teachers quote like that who are like wanting to build a huge business around their teaching, I don't know. They kind of disqualify themselves from the ranks of a real one. Hmm. The real ones, people just gravitate toward them for no other reason other than there's something really different about this guy. Mm -hmm. This guy is perceiving reality in a way that 
most people aren't. And he can teach me how to do that. And I want to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I studied with Shinzen for, uh, I don't know. It's hard to keep track of time, man. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe seven, eight years. I, I moved to LA from Philly when I was 24. That would have been back in 20, 2009. Mm-hmm. And I got out of Philly because I was, I just needed a change of scenery. And uh, I just, my life was out of, out of balance, out of order. And I thought that if I changed my environment, maybe it would help me. Mm-hmm. And um, I just randomly found this meditation collective that was close by where I was living here in Santa Monica. And through that organization, I met a teacher named George Haas, who's an amazing man, an amazing practitioner. And there was a few teachers in this particular organization. George was one of them. And George was the one that I could just feel was my kind of guy. He he would teach the practice and articulate the practice in a way that was coming from like, you could tell it was coming from a deep personal understanding. Like he was articulating his direct experience. He wasn't teaching me what somebody taught him. He wasn't saying what he heard someone else say or what he read in a book. He was a real one. Yeah. And real ones are the exception to the rule, man. Mm. And so I just kind of gravitated toward him and he was a Shenzhen student. So he introduced me to Shenzhen and then okay. studied with Shenzhen. And George also introduced me to Dan Brown, the late, great Dan Brown, rest in peace to an absolute legend. He just passed away a few months ago. Mm. Um, but those three men definitely uh, have informed my meditation practice. Okay. The way I practice and the way I teach individuals to practice. Mm. George Hoskins and young Dan Brown. So you mentioned that he was the real deal. Do you think that's a function of someone having an intimate understanding of a practice, whatever that practice is, whatever whether it's meditation or, or weightlifting or martial arts or whatever? Do you think it's a function of them healing themselves on that path as opposed to intellectually understanding something? Absolutely. I do. And even Shinzen, I mean, he started as a scholar of comparative religions and he went to Japan to like write a report on Buddhism. And then he ended up, long story short, he became a monastic. Um, But yeah, to answer your question, you have to relentlessly apply yourself to a particular practice or skill day in and day out. And learn, you know, everything there is to learn about that skill and then learn and then start to see everything through the lens of that skill. You see this in martial arts, you see this in meditation, you see this in, you know, art, Mm. musicians, you know, you start, if you go all the way into something, you start to see the world through the lens of that thing. And you learn about the world through that thing and the things in the world teach you about that thing. And yes, you heal yourself through that thing. And that's the hard work. And it's like, and then the easy work is teaching the people how to do what you do. Because you do it, it's just part of you. Mm -hmm. Like, when I look at my life and my work, the hard part of my work was getting myself in order. You know, that was like a, a hero's journey. I'm not trying to say that I got it all figured out or that there's still not work to be done because there always will be. But I know I'm functioning at a lot higher level than I used to. 
And I know that if I continue to do what I'm doing, I'm just going to continue to function at higher and higher levels. So the hard part was figuring out how to get myself in order. The easy part now is working with people because I just say, oh, yeah, I know where you're at. I've been there, too. Mm -hmm. This is what I did. This is what you could try. Mm -hmm. You're not me, so you can, you know, tweak this in a way that works for you. But yeah. work is so easy. <laughs> yeah. The healing is the hard part. The work mm. is the easy part. Mm. You hit on a critical point there, which is the the error of in logic, math, math, mathematical logic. There's a there's an instantial generalization, which is a flaw in logic. Right? It's pretty simple. It's like I have uh, whatever. I walk down the street, and when I cross the street, I stub my toe on this curb. Therefore, everyone will stub their toe on this curb when they walk down the right. street. Just because you had a personal experience of whatever, you know, I did this type of interval training on my bike and then I won a bike race. So you will too. So everyone will win bike races if they do the same intervals. And this sure. is such a basic, when I explain it, it sounds trite or sophomoric, but it, I see people apply it in, not only in cycling coaching, but in life over and over and over again. And and I think that's there's a tension there because there's truth to it, as you said. Like, what makes you a good teacher is the fact that you've gone through your path. You came from Philly to L.A. You had your own challenges in your past, and you walked down the path, and you had an understanding, an inner understanding of how to grow on this path and how to discover meditation for yourself and how it helped you heal. Mm -hmm. So that's a powerful lesson. The error is assuming that everyone else will heal in exactly the same way. Right. But so as teachers are task is to take what we've learned and offer it to the student in a way that can be helpful to them, but understand that we don't necessarily know everything because even though we've mastered our own path, or as you said, not trying to say that I have it all together and then I've got it all figured out, there will always be work to be done. I agree 100% with mm -hmm. that statement. But I made progress and I've healed a lot of my own shit. So the practice for me is to interpret what I've learned as an athlete, as a human, as a father, as a husband, and help, and as a, a person who's first and foremost sweeping my own doorstep, right? Which is tenant number one of Paul's program. Mm -hmm. I guess the first, the first thing, I, we all, mm -hmm. in that order, order of operations, I, we all, apply your own oxygen mask first. And so the goal is for me to apply that mask do my own work, continue to sweep my own doorstep, but also, and offer that whatever lessons I glean from that process to my clients, to my loved ones, to anyone else who may benefit from it, but without assuming that my path is their path. Yeah. Right. And to also remain a student, even as you're in the role of teacher. Mm -hmm. And that means continue to continue to study with your own teachers, but also approach the people that are looking at you like you're their teacher approach them like they're your teacher because they are yeah absolutely yes yeah, so. i learn from my clients all the time same and uh isn't that beautiful yeah man it really is it never fails like you know someone comes to you wanting to work with something that you could also shine a light on yeah in your own personal life mm -hmm. yeah so to remain you know humble and you know not a guru, not a, not a, you know, a teacher. Okay. But mm. remain humble because I definitely don't have all the answers, but 
I'm happy to help and listen to whoever whoever wants to work with me. And, uh, you know, I'm not meant to work with everybody. Some people are just not going to dig how I yeah. approach things. And there's teachers out there, and I don't dig how they approach things. So, you know, if you're looking for someone to work with, um, you got to find somebody who, you know, resonates with you. Yeah. And I don't resonate with everybody, and that's okay with me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to. Right. Yeah. If you resonate with everyone, by definition, you would be scaling to the masses, and that's probably not yeah. your objective, right? I'm actually, my objective now is probably, I don't know, really kind of define the individuals that I want to work with mm-hmm. and not work with people who aren't in that. You know, of course, you know, help everyone in life, you know, live in service and be useful and be helpful, but not everybody. I don't need to engage everybody in a professional relationship. Mm. I want to work with a certain kind of person, somebody who is prepared to work, you know, who understands that the healing path is not unicorns and rainbows. Mm -hmm. It's hard work. It's confronting things you successfully avoided. It's, you know, you need some tenacity and you have to be willing to look in the back of the closet you know, dig everything up and it's totally worth doing, but it's not easy to do. It's why most people don't do it. Mm. But I want to work with people who are at a point in their life where they're ready to become something new. Mm -hmm. And there's always another corner of the closet to shine the light in. That's what's cool about it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Whether it's your own closet or your clients. Mm Mm-hmm. But looking, it's it's such a fascinating process when you get to know someone really well because you start to feel their edges. Yeah. And then you give them a little light to show them what they're missing. Right. Or a little push toward the edge. Not yeah. too hard. Not right. too hard. Right. Just a little loving. <laughs> yeah. Pushing the lower back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my good friends in, in college uh, sort of was like a pop psychologist at this technique. Um but he was somewhat cruel about it. I mean, it was like a playful thing for him. He's quite, quite smart, quite clever. So he would, he would meet people, men or women, and he would play this game, which is see if I can make them cry in two sentences. Which, wow. That's, yeah. Sounds uh, sadistic. Is is brutal. He was really good at it. <laughs> people didn't like him very much. No I would imagine there. they didn't. I don't think I liked him either. <laughs> Honestly, I never met him, but he sounds like kind of an asshole. He's <laughs> smart guy. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> He lightened up now and, and has changed his ways. Yeah, I mean, and he's a great he, coach. If he has that kind of insightful clarity around somebody, then he could probably make somebody joyfully laugh in two sentences or mm-hmm. relax in two sentences. So maybe he should lean into that edge. Right. <laughs> but he had clearly an ability to perceive the tension in an individual yeah. pretty quickly. That's yeah. a pretty, I think it's a gift actually that more people have than they prob- than probably realize. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's Paul's gift, mm-hmm. one of his many gifts, right? Mm-hmm. He can look at a person and see all the things, all the crazy shit that he can see and immediately pick up on their whatever, their tension that they're trying to resolve, their internal friction. Yeah. And that's a byproduct of this, of that practice of stillness, of, yeah. of, you know, cultivating that magnifying glass on your own being. Mm. Because until you can see yourself that way, you'll never be able to see anybody else that way. Mm-hmm. And that can be offered as a gift, that that level of clarity. 
or you can reduce somebody to tears in two sentences. <laughs> right. The choice is yours, but right. there, there are consequences to the choice you make. Yes, of course. And Paul, to be fair, I think it was Nicole Devaney who told me that he filleted her soul in one of the classes he taught with her. So he has the capacity to do that, but I'm sure he, he did it in a way that ended up changing the course of her life by several degrees. Yeah, sometimes the sword that comes from the teacher is a loving thrust right through <laughs> your intestines. But you got to make sure that the person that you're eviscerating is prepared for that. Yeah. You know, not everybody is. Right. Or how can they be, but maybe robust enough to survive the attack. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or the dissection. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. So will you describe a little bit more about what goes on at uh, the tribe retreats? I want to share that with my audience. Maybe yeah, man. And actually, we have one coming up in uh, early yeah. November. In Austin. Just outside of Austin. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it's about an hour drive from Austin. So it's uh, September 29th as of recording. This will probably get released in the next week. So just so cool. So yeah, it'll yeah. be November 4th to 7th, I believe. Okay. Uh, and anyone who wants to learn more can go to uh, tribemenscommunity.com or you can just shoot me an email through my website at savageandsaint.com. Cool. Um, but yeah, the, the, the pillars of the tribe men's community are, um, I teach with two colleagues, men who I trust, um, really amazing teachers in their own right. And my offering to the community is self-mastery, which is just like a really sexy way of saying like holistic health. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not claiming to have mastered myself, but I'm on the path and, uh, you know, it's important. So I, I teach around lifestyle practices, health practices, you know, um, natural means to shift your state, optimize your well-being, you know, coming into right relationship with your mind, with your emotions moving your body in healthy ways. I teach martial art, as you know. I teach Muay Thai. I teach Filipino martial art, Penchak Silat, Tai Chi and Qigong. So we explore different foundational concepts through movement and the martial arts and mm -hmm. access different parts of yourself through movement. You know, one of my favorite things to do in the tribe intensives is I bring some weapons, either sticks or knives, and you give 30 dudes sticks and just let them start swinging it. And you know, bro, you start swinging a stick, listening to some drums, mm -hmm. around 30 other dudes who are swinging a stick, it just wakes something up in you, right? Mm. Like something that belongs here, mm. something that is a very real part of you, that you need, that you can bring into your life in loving ways. You know, you can find your balls you can find your strength. You can find your warrior spirit. And you can bring that into the boardroom. You can bring that into your work with your clients. You can bring that into, you know, a relationship with somebody you love. I will not tolerate. I cannot watch you destroy yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like the swinging of the stick or the sword or the knife or the punches and the kicks are all metaphors for strength of your spine. So quite a few practices around that. And then um, I teach with Justin Pierce. And Dave Burns, Justin's living Dharma is his relationship with his partner, you know, and he teaches men and women, his, he and his partner teach, you know, um, co-ed intensives, but Justin teaches men how to approach their relationship with their woman as a vehicle for their own 
you know, spiritual growth, you know, to, to gain insight about the way a woman sees the world mm -hmm. or the way about the things that you do moment by moment by moment every day are either opening the flower of your woman or closing her. Mm -hmm. And he teaches individuals how to re-establish passionate lovemaking and, you know, authentic best friend energy and just to be intentional with how you are with your woman. Or if you're alone and you want to call a woman in, how to do that. Mm -hmm. And Dave Burns is a very successful entrepreneur and a brilliant individual. And he approaches his business like a monastery. So his, his like um, view is that he uses his business endeavors to as his spiritual discipline. And um, he's helped me tremendously with my business. And so if we look at those three topics, you know, a man's relationship with himself, a man's relationship to his woman or his family or both, mm -hmm. and his relationship to his purpose and actualizing his purpose in the real world through business. I mean, that's everything. You know, we're not, we're not leaving anything out. And you start to connect the dots that, okay, actually getting better at any one of these is going to help me get better at the other ones. And when I get better at the other ones, I'll get better at this. So if I want to, if I deepen my relationship with my woman, if I remove the friction from our household and we can come back to a place of love, I feel oh, relaxed and I can take that relaxation into my spiritual disciplines and my meditations. Mm -hmm. And then clarity emerges around what my purpose is. And I can go into the business world and I can accumulate more resources and live better and help more people. It's like, yeah, it builds. It builds upon itself, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So we get a, we get a diverse population of guys that come. Some guys come because they hear about me and they're more martial art type dudes. Some guys are more, they already have spiritual practice, but they're like broke yogis, you know? Mm -hmm. They're super spiritual, but mm -hmm. they don't have any money. And, you know, earning money in the world is part of, you know, well, not necessarily, but if you want to be a man in the world, you're going to need some cash. And so that becomes its own discipline. So. Mm -hmm. We get a diverse population of guys and every retreat that we've done that thus far has been better than the one before. And it's just always an amazing feeling to see people grow in the container that we create. Mm. And it's, it's very rewarding work and I'm looking forward to, uh, to Austin in November. Yeah. I have to say my experience um, last fall, me in Topanga was, uh, it was outstanding. And I'm not just saying that cause you're here on my pod, like, you guys had a, a commanding presence for the group that was that generated a lot of stillness and a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very rare, you know, in uh, so many groups, so many Zoom calls, so many meetings we have, so many other classes I've attended. People are, you know, scratching their ass or sure. petting their cat or or whatever, and that's just one, this may sound like a detail, but it, it set the tone for the entire weekend, that we're here to do work, we're here to learn, we're here to be present, right? And distractions are things that we're gonna put to the side for the moment. Yeah. Even the simple things like the noble silence that we did during some of the breakfasts, mm -hmm. um, 
which is just to explain that concept briefly, it's it's a period of time where you set aside and you agree as a group, you're not going to make eye contact with anyone. You're not going to speak to them, but you can be in presence with them. If somebody catches on fire, you know, obviously course, you do what yeah. you have to do, but, but barring disaster, you simply intend to yourself. Is that, a, is that a good description? Yeah, it's a great description. You know, that's uh, pretty typical of traditional retreat practice. Mm. You know, the tribe intensive is not a meditation retreat, but there are certainly periods of meditation. And we start every morning with an early morning practice of breath, movement, meditation, and then we maintain that noble silence through breakfast, as you described. Mm. And, um, you know, if you look at it through the lens of a traditional, like, let's say, Buddhist meditation retreat, the entirety of the retreat is done in noble silence because like you said we collectively agree to just do away with all the social pleasantries that we maintain when we're in you know ordinary reality say good morning you acknowledge someone's presence you hold a door for them but we collectively agree that we're not going to do that not because we want to be rude but because we want to allow for this kind of upwelling of insights or epiphanies or moments of clarity and somebody could be on the verge of some kind of insight and then all of a sudden someone comes in and says hey that was really great this morning huh what do you think about that it's mm-hmm. like it can feel very invasive when mm-hmm. when you touch the depths that we touch you know you don't really feel like having mm-hmm. meaningless side chats you know you'd rather just stay in that space of stillness mm-hmm. so yeah, it's powerful and it's uh, it's totally worth doing for a period of time. Um, yeah, I, I lost my train of thought for a moment there. For me, I found the noble sounds quite easy, but I'm also a person who can tend towards introversi- int- introverted behavior, introversism. I think I just made up a word, but yeah. Um, I'm sure I can imagine it would be quite, it could be quite challenging for those people who compulsively feel the need to speak or share experience or. Yeah. So for an individual like that, the edge is to maintain the noble silence for an individual like you. And I would say I'm similar. It's to, okay, now we're going to re-engage each other and talk Oh Fuck. I'd rather stay in this space of silence. Right. But you know, there's, there's benefits on each side. Um, yeah, so looking forward to, to the upcoming intensive in, in November. Yeah. It's, it's going to be good. We're, we have a good group signed up. There's still spots remaining, so if anyone's listening and they want to learn more, drop me a line. Cool. Yeah, I will also say that attending the retreat last year, it brought me what I would say is some good clarity on fundamental pillars mm-hmm. of those topics. Yeah. Um, and, you know, part of the, the attention that we sit in during the sessions, during the, the talking sessions, the teaching sessions, uh, that means that we're not taking notes, yeah. right? So when we practice um, these sessions where we're in dojo and there's no water, there's no notepads, there's no, you're sitting on the cushion at attention. Mm-hmm. You're, you're listening, you're absorbing. And what lands is what lands. What lands is what you needed. Exactly. Right? So there you are. You're in the moment. Something said, something profound is said that hits you in the heart. Mm-hmm. It's there now, you know. But then you want to remove yourself from the moment and scribble that down so you can have it for later. But it's there now. Just yeah. let it be there. Yeah. So earlier I lost my train of thought, but you just reminded me. You you said something that that's very profound, and you were talking about 
the the container mm. that is created. And that's, you, you said, I don't know, it's kind of like a detail, but it's the main idea of the whole thing. Mm. You know, if you walk into a, a Walmart, there's a certain kind of energy there. You know, or whatever, Walmart, any grocery store, any public place. There's a certain decorum or way you can behave. It's not so uptight. Uptight's not the right word, but mm. if you walk into a cathedral, all of immediately there's just a different feeling tone f- to it. Yeah, you know. And so I'm not trying to say that we're trying to like be militaristic or be super holy and, or create a cathedral, but we are trying to create a space where you can walk into it and just feel that okay, it's not appropriate for me to be chewing gum in here. No one needs to tell you that. You can just feel. You feel it. it. Yeah. There's a reverence. Yeah. Yeah. And so in a container like that, it allows for the upwelling of insights, for clarity, mm. for epiphanies, you know, for deep practice. Mm. But if you walk into a room and some guy's laying on his pillow and other guy's got a hat on and he's checking his phone and some guy's scratching his balls and there's another guy who's not even there. Yeah. What can you really get done in a container like that? Right. You no. Know, right. It's not conducive to the depth of the work that we're trying to offer. Mm. Okay, so that brings me to a great kind of paradox that I've had in my head for a while. So I'll, I'll present this to you and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But I think we, we, key, we, we keyed in on a tension there that's been kind of flip-flopping in my brain for a long time. So mm-hmm. I'm in a situation where my wife and I bought our house in 1998. We moved in. It was just renovated. And... At the time, I don't know where the fire was, to be honest, when we got married. It was like, let's get married. Let's buy a house. Boom. And then then she was pregnant shortly thereafter, which... You're the fire. <laughs> there was a lot of fire. There were yeah. a lot of things. So now, fast forward 23 years later, and we're still in this house. We realized several years ago, really, this house isn't the expression of who we are or the lifestyles we want to live. And so right now, we're meeting at a hotel in Santa Monica and this hotel has kind of a, uh, I'm going to, I'm terrible with actors and directors names, but you know, the Royal Tenenbaums. Oh yeah. Is it Jim Jarmusch? No, 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 Jim's ghost dog. Oh yeah. 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 No, Uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. I know it. So in any case, I'm sure everyone knows. That's that's You're actually right. Right. This hotel has a very, kind of royal tenant and all of his films have that common weave even the films that are of slightly different topics they kind of have that same feel to them there's an aesthetic, same aesthetic yeah right and this is the hotel i'm in which the second you walked in the lobby you said wow i've never been in this place this is really cool like it had an impact on you it yeah. has an impact on on us our our environment impacts us yes right and this was landed home to me when my wife took and i took a trip to spain this spring we stayed on this amazing property. It was this huge place with multiple structures and had a gym and had a big yoga room, like a, basically a dojo. And the first day we were there, my wife got up and she walked the entire property. It's several acres. They have a dog, a farm dog, and she walked the property. And then she went and did yoga for an hour. Mm. And these are things that don't happen commonly at home. Right. And I immediately I was blown away because I realized the reason she did it is because she has the right space to do it in the, the environment, the this atmosphere, the surroundings, uh, the structures brought that, enabled that behavior out of her, right? Totally. Whereas some other places you can't, 
I mean, it's so having that wrestling match without going into the details of why we're still in this house and we haven't sold it, finances, life, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Knowing that that house isn't really the expression of who, of our lifestyle that we want to live. I've had this tension in myself because I, I, for a long time, I was quite unhappy because I felt relatively trapped in that house, which I realized that's a really privileged, potentially assholeish thing to say because I live in Boulder, Colorado in a house that is inflated by a massive real estate bubble. So I'm not trying to sound ungrateful or privileged at all. I hear you. I'm simply stating that this isn't this house isn't the expression of how we want to live sure. or it's not the environment we want to we want to exist in. So I wrestle with that part because I don't want to feel super privileged, but that's one part of it. But then the other part of it is for a long time I was unhappy because I was like this isn't the the house I want to live in. It's not allowing me to live the life I want to live. And then I retreated a level into myself. And there's a point where the coin flipped and I realized, you know, all I really need is air supply, clean water, clean food, people who love me. The rest of this is just material stuff. It doesn't fucking matter if it's not the floor I want or the architecture I want or the kitchen faucet is shitty and old and whatever. Like these things don't matter. They're just physical things. Mm -hmm. So I retreated a layer is how I think of it because I, I made my bubble my own perspective. And in a way that was a good edge for me to push on because it helped me go into myself and cultivate happiness in my own regard, start to train my elephant. That was one step in that process. Mm -hmm. And yet I still recognize that our physical environment impacts our psychology. It impacts our emotions. It impacts our behaviors. It has to. Yeah in obvious ways and in probably much more subtle ways. And one of the practices I still remember from before I attended the tribe uh, retreat with you in Topanga, I also did an online retreat. I remember. With your group. Yeah. And one of the practices you had us do was uh, go clean your space. It was a simple, treat it as a meditation, but with a tidying of your space, whatever mm -hmm. that means. Organize papers into stacks, you know, put your dirty laundry in the hamper or make your bed, whatever, simple things, right? If those things are done, then vacuum the floor or clean the sink or whatever. And it was, it was given to us as a practice to clean your external environment so that it could be a reflection of your internal environment and yeah. give you space. Just as when you guys create space, that container in the dojo, it gives us space by opening, by calming the physical environment. It allows the emotional and mental space to reflect that. Absolutely. To some degree, right? Absolutely. So I don't know if that was a question or more just an exploration, but no, it was a very profound observation about the way one's environment affects their mood, their behavior. I think you can think about it too. Like um, I look at the cultivation of health as tending to your most proximal living space, you know, your body. If you're, mm. if you're, you can make of your body a cathedral-like environment. You know, you can be very selective about what you put inside your body. Um, you can allow for the release of emotions that you're holding. You know, take out the trash, let the gunk go. You can clean out the bowels and remove impacted, you know, feces that have been there for a long time. Health, the health is a deep clean of your body because, as you just stated, when you walk into a space that is well maintained and orderly, there's just a felt sense of reverence. Yes. And so the, the, the practice of 
health is tending and tidying up that most proximal living space that we all have, mm. our own body. And then once that's clean, you just want to kind of live in a place that is orderly and conducive to, I mean, for me, it's not for everybody. It's mm. not for everybody. And it's not the way, but it is my way. The way I choose to live is things go in the right place. Things are orderly. Mm. You know, when I wake up and I do my morning practice, everything is where it belongs. And it makes me, I do a lot of my work from my home. And so when my living space is well maintained, I find myself to be much more at ease and productive. Some people, you know, they're just like to, I'm not trying to say that's the right way. And in fact, I can probably go too far that way, Mm -hmm. you know, be too orderly to the point where it's a little OCD. Yeah. But it works for me. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something in the masculine spirit that thrives on order, regimen, discipline. You know, it's like it's it's in us. And when we adhere to that, we it's conducive to touching deeper parts of ourselves or pulling greater things from ourselves. Yeah. Well, that's the yang aspect is cleaving, cutting, organizing, yeah. order, right? I mean, the, look at a monastery or look at a military base. You know, there, yeah. there are there are rules yes. that you must follow. <laughs> you know, if you don't make your bed, it's like, all what? Yeah. yeah, all hell breaks loose. Yeah. So there's something to be said for bringing that level of attention to detail into your own life. Mm. I, I truly feel that. I don't know if you know Marie Kondo, but she's like, Mm -hmm. she's a wizard to me, man. I I just (laughs) finished the Kondo method. I do it like three or four times a a year in my, I I just have a little one bedroom. And every time I do it, I let go of less and less things because I keep less and less things. But Uh I just really like, you know, when I walk inside of my home, there's nothing there, nothing that I didn't consciously choose and say, yes, I want you to remain here. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. You know, down to a pair of socks. Yes. And it just feels so freeing. I couldn't agree more. I've started that practice uh, not really understanding it, just intuiting it in college when I moved into my first apartment. And I remember going to like, I probably went to Salvation Army and got stuff, but I was literally picking out each fork. Yeah. It was the same line of thought. It's yeah. like, I don't want to just own random shit. I want to own things that are intentional. Yeah. Every bowl, every plate, everything, every pair of socks. Right. And I still think that way. And it astounds me when people don't think that way because I, I'm, it's so ingrained in my DNA that I have a hard time imagining people who aren't that connected to the physical environment they live in. Yeah. I'm not here to, as you said, it's, it's my way. It's not everyone's way. And I'm not, I'm not judging those people negatively. It's more like, I just don't get it. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a hard time understanding how I can relate. walk through the world I that can, way. I can relate. <laughs> totally. And I'll also say that this is the role of our women is to play the unpredictable ocean. The chaos. The chaos. Yeah. To go mess up your sock drawer or whatever. It <laughs> and make fun always... of you for being such a goof about <laughs> it. And, and actually, yeah, yeah. kind of remind you that Oh, yeah, it's not that serious. Not that big a deal. Yeah. 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 It's funny. It doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes the woman is the OCD one and the man is the slob or whatever. But, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, but that's a central theme in the in the tribe, you know, uh, curriculum and mm. the intensives too is is how to honor the inherent differences mm. between men and women because here's a controversial fucking idea: men and women are not the same. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God, ah. I must be a misogynist. <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, they're not the same. They're not even equal. No. But they're balanced. Men and women are balanced. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I've done quite a bit of work with Justin. He's one of my best friends. And I've been in the room while he's teaching many times. And I always learn something from the way he talks about, you know, the masculine energies and the feminine energies and how to create polarity with your lover and understand her better and you know imagine what it might actually be like to be a woman and mm-hmm. and to love you know all those things that drive you crazy about her to actually become somewhat amused by them and mm-hmm. see how beautiful they are mm-hmm. yeah i mean i'm biased but i believe the world would be a better place if every man came to a tribe intensive mm-hmm. <laughs> i would agree with you yeah yeah we're doing yeah. good work in the world. You know, it's unfortunate because I guess there's like a reemergence of men's work, you know, in the past couple of years. And there's a lot of whack stuff out there. Mm. There's a lot of weak stuff out there. You know, I've seen, I've seen, I'm not going to name any names, but I've seen, you know, cultures of men's communities that are just promoting kind of ways of being that I don't think are helpful for culture or society. And then I've also seen, you know, like super misogynistic kind of women hating alpha male yeah. type bogus shit. That's just like yeah, kind of becoming pretty popular. And unfortunately, like if, if I explain to somebody, if it comes up in conversation that yeah, I'm teaching a men's retreat, that goes through their filter of whatever that means to them. That may be totally different from what is actually happening. But, yep. you know, the men's intensives are not like. It's men retreating from life, retreating from women, retreating from their family, retreating from their day-to-day obligations to engage practices so that they can re-emerge from that experience and go back into their lives with a renewed sense of clarity, purpose, reverence, awe, admiration, love for the people in their lives and Mm. to, you know, find their own strength so that they can lead themselves well toward the things that are meaningful in their life and also lead the people in their lives that are depending upon their leadership. Mm-hmm. So it's it's important to me. Yeah. Yeah. Just to rewind for a second, I think one of the key takeaways that I was gifted at the retreat was simply the concept of polarity that's taught by Justin. Yeah. That word is so critical to understanding how men and women relate to each other. Yeah. And if you want to read a bit about that and have a good understanding of Justin's teachings, you can go to the, the website and search for an article called how to breathe a woman. Yeah. That's a really powerful article. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of good ones on the, on the blog there. Um, but that is a that's a great one. Say the name of the website again, please. Tribe Men's Community. Yeah. I'm a couple times I've searched using those words a little bit separately, and you get some weird shit. So, 
just keep going until you get the right place. Yeah. Or if you go to my website, savageandsaint.com, mm-hmm. uh, there's a link for the tribe website. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's some good articles, and that's a good one, too. Yeah, including like, your article about liver. Yeah. The king of all brick foods. Yeah. Is that what it is, the title? Yeah. That's what it was called. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. was, I put that out before Liver King blew up and stole my thunder. <laughs> my friend Jonathan will not stop sending me Liver King posts just because he thinks they're hilarious. Yeah, that guy. Um, that guy. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of good articles. There's some good videos. But yeah, to Justin's article, it's How to Breathe a Woman. It's like, uh, mm. you know, if you want to create that passion with your woman, you have to just get still. Yeah. Because the masculine pole is just complete non-preferential stillness. Mm. And you'll find that the more quiet you become, and not, not just don't say anything, but actually get still, the more that energy will just make her want to start moving a little bit you know so as you abide in that pole of masculinity you push her magnetically into her pole of femininity and all of a sudden the fuck were we even fighting about right get over here <laughs> sit on my lap yeah you know? it's not that simple but it is that but simple. it is yeah paul said it the same exact thing just a few days ago in course he said yeah. you know on the one hand it's really simple yeah it's also insanely complicated, but at the same time, yeah. it's not. It's really simple. Yeah, and it's yeah. not like you're, um, you know, brushing aside whatever it is that she's upset about or mm-hmm. whatever. What does she want? She wants your presence. That's she all she ever just wants. Authentically listen. Yeah. And be present. Yeah. yeah. That's all she wants. Yeah. And that's you know, you can yeah. learn how to do that. But to bring it back to the pillars of the tribe community, it's self mastery is a one body practice. Mm. It's your relationship to your own body, your own mind, your own spirit, your own emotions. You, know, you have to start to exercise some mastery there. And then Justin calls us into a two-body practice. Mm-hmm. Okay, how do we bring these skills that we're cultivating in our spiritual disciplines into the real life, you know, um, playing out of our of our loving relationship? And then Dave brings us into a multi-body practice business mm-hmm. yeah you know? yep how does your presence affect your business what well, I, I promise you it does mm. one of the things that you'll find in a tribe retreat is um you know offering feedback or observations to somebody about the way they show up about their posture about their body language mm. that everybody who's ever encountered them has thought about them but Never told them. Never said. Yeah, yeah, because it just that's just not how society works. You mm-hmm. just don't tell somebody everything that you think about them. Right. But, you know, when you tell somebody that from a place of, you know, I want you to know this so that you can, you know, grow. Mm. It's like, oh, shit. I never knew that my inability to hold eye contact was the reason that people didn't trust me. Right. I didn't know that the reason that I didn't know that because my breath is so shallow that there's just this underlying level of anxiety that people feel around me. And if I just practice breathing into my belly, I feel more calm and people feel more calm around me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like all these little pearls of wisdom that you get about yourself that you never knew. Yeah. But you put it into practice and it blows your mind the way when you embody these teachings that you learn, the external world responds to you differently. Mm-hmm. 
I was thinking actually of that exact exercise the other day when Paul was staring at me in class because he does have a way of filleting souls. And one of the things I took away the gems was that apparently I stand, well, we had, I think we had three students stand in front of the class and the rest of the class gave feedback on who looked more present. That mm-hmm. is how I remember the, the exercise. Yeah. And one of the takeaways for me was that I hold a fair amount of tension in my jaw and my masters. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that told people that I come across at times as a little armored. Yeah. Which is, you know, looking back on it, it was so crystal clear. Like right. when you're standing in front of a class of people, you, you feel like you're being judged because you are. That's okay. Just be judged. Sure. Sit in the crucible. That's what you're there for. But... That was, and so I was thinking of that during class the other day when Paul was looking at me and I checked in with my masters and I found they were relaxed, which is yeah good. I'm sure he saw 16 other things you could comment on. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, you might get one guy tell you something that's, you know, seems to be a little off, mm. but if somebody gives you a piece of feedback and then somebody else gives you the same piece of feedback and then somebody else, somebody else, yeah. it's like, okay, wait a minute. Common denominator. Yeah. Maybe there's something for me to look into here. So you just get insights about yourself. Mm-hmm. And that that's critical feedback is one of the things that we foster in our community. Um, not to pick somebody apart or break somebody down, but to build somebody up. To summon the courage to tell, something, tell someone difficult about themselves that everybody thinks, but no one says. Yep. You know, and to offer yep. that criticism as here, this is my gift to you is... Yeah. And then to be willing to receive that. And when you can create the, the, those cultures in your close male friendships, you can up-level your whole, your whole tribe. Getting that authentic feedback and yeah. in yeah. that environment of that container. It comes back to that environment, right? Exactly. It's like everybody signed up for it. We're all here to get our asses kicked a little bit. Yeah. Or maybe a lot. Yeah. We're all here to sit in the crucible, so let's, let's do it. That, that was a powerful part of the experience for me. Yeah, man, also glad you came. The other part that I took away from Dave's teachings were just, this is the most basic concept, but as soon as I learned it from him, it was very illuminating in my own, the way I think about money. So what he taught me was that money is, it's simply an exchange for someone else's time and energy. That's literally all it is. So you put time and energy into something and then you sell it to someone. Mm Mm-hmm. The person who made this computer or the people, the team of lots of people, I paid them money for their time and energy to build a computer because I don't have the time and energy to do that. Mm-hmm. Right? It's that simple. Yeah. So you make something in the world that is worth, that other people will pay you for. You put time and energy into it and they give you money in exchange. You ask for some money and then you, you ask for some money. And then, yeah. and then the, the nuance of it, of course, is just like with relationship with anything else in one sense it's really simple of course yeah. it gets really complicated no dave has a knack for simplifying very complex I, ideas i love that and the way he talks about yeah. sales and business and that kind of thing yeah. i mean it's helped me tremendously it also helps me see trends in personality um personality trends in people around me in my life and help helps me understand how they view their relationship with money because there are lots of people i know who are okay with one side of that equation, but not the other. Sure. And to me, that's not logical. Yeah. Like, or they'll pay, they'll spend money on a super fast car, but then they buy shit for food. 
Yeah, I mean, right? uh, you know, I think when you engage in this inquiry about your blind spots, which is the practice of self-mastery, those blind spots are going to show up most often in two places. Sex, sex and relationship mm. and money. <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like we, yeah. we learn to build this magnifying glass on ourselves mm. in the one body practice. Mm. And then we bring that into how we show up to our in our relationship. And then we bring that magnifying glass into how we show up to our finances and, mm. you know, our, our way of relating to our business. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's there's a lot of work there. There's a lot of work there. Ed. Dr. Doug talks about this. He profiles the driven person as someone who he says it's very common for them to have this myopic focus on whatever they are, you know, their businesses or their or their athletic pursuit or whatever they poured all their passion, all their drive into, but at the expense, the brutal expense of attention to the other areas of their life. Right. And if I remember correctly, there's four major areas. I can't recall exactly because I haven't read his book yet. I've just been listening to his pods. But one of them is definitely relationship and another is money. So he talks yeah. about how, you know, people are. And that that's an age old story of the, the creative person who's super passionate about something, but they're shit for a business owner, right? Basically bankrupt, even though they're making these amazing products. Same with the athlete, right? Totally. Go winning world, world championships or medals or whatever and whatever they're doing, but then their relationship is in shambles. Come yeah. home and, yeah. Yeah, balance is crucial. Balance is crucial. Also, like Paul says, you know, you can squat 700 pounds, but it really doesn't fucking matter if you come home at the end of the day and can't get along with your wife and kids, <laughs> right? Yeah. How happy can you really be? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had one other bit I was going to ask you. I may have escaped my cuckoo's nest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we've taken a nice deep dive so far. Yeah. We could talk a bit about uh, Savage and Saint. Please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mentioned before my website is savageandsaint.com. That's the name of my business. Mm. And, um, you know, it's this kind of living philosophy that has come to me over the years of this kind of uh, these two necessary forces in, in a man's life, if he would reach his fullness, one of the uh, the savage determination to improve all areas of your life all the time. Um, but that must then be leavened by this saintly kind of capacity to radically and unconditionally accept the conditions of your life exactly as they are with gratitude mm. all the time. Mm. You know, And so if you can do both of those things, you'll find peace. And so I think like the, the gross interpretation of savage and saint as i understood it when it first kind of came to me it was because i was very into martial art like combative martial art and competitive kickboxing and you know like street self-defense like i really like that like brutal training mm -hmm. and that's savage and then saint was i was also very heavily invested in you know meditation practice and i was going on long retreats and that's saint mm -hmm. But it's kind of like the yin yang symbol, like the savage hides in the sane and the sane hides in the hides in the savage. So look at meditation, for example. We talked about how how it's difficult, and if you're going to do a long retreat, you better you know check your nuts because it's going it's probably going to be a bumpy ride. It's gonna it's gonna require some strong determination. Yep. 
it's going to create a more saintly way of being, but it's going to require a savage determination, even yeah. within the context of meditation. So, And then if martial art, you know, you can become very skilled in violence, um, and that can be quite savage, but if your intention in the cultivation of that skill mm. is to protect people, that's saintly. And if you have a strong kind of spiritual commitment not to hurt people, then that's saintly. Mm -hmm. So I, I saw this embodied in a few men that I met a long time ago that really had a profound impact on me. That like, wow, a man can be the most dangerous person in the room and the sweetest person in the room mm -hmm. This at the same time in the same body. Yep. And I never saw that before. I never even knew it was possible. But I was like, holy shit, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Everyone should strive to be like that. I mm -hmm. want to be like that. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the philosophy. And then basically that's the kind of, that's the energy in Savage and Saint. And then in my work, there's four primary areas of exploration that we take that energy into. And that would be the path of meditation, the shamanic path, which is just, you know, like the the ritual connection with nature. To, to learn to see nature as the face of spirit, as your own face. To spend time in nature and to allow nature to teach you about who you are. Mm. And then there's the path of Taoism and the path of movement or martial art. So that's, that's a bit about my private work, my one-on-one -on -one work in a nutshell. But, you know, everyone that I work with we collaborate on a different kind of program that mm -hmm. is born because everybody has different goals, everybody has different edges, everybody has different ideas. And so that's basic a basic overview of my one-on-one -on -one work. But like I said, every everyone I work with is different. I definitely don't have a cookie-cutter approach. There are basic foundational principles like Paul's, yeah. you know, mind, breath, sleep, nutrition, hydration, movement. Yeah. That's just, the, the, that's always there. But uh, I allow oftentimes my clients to teach me what it is that they really need. Mm. Okay, so one concept that we've touched upon that I wanted to kind of draw out a bit or expand upon is that when you cultivate stillness, when you learn to direct your elephant and you begin to come to a place of real stillness, for me, this is an essential tool for a coach because the quieter you are, the more receptive you can be, just as you said, yeah. to what the client needs, right? And then when you're teaching them, it's from a shaman, to use shamanic language for a moment, it's the concept of the hollow bone, yeah, right? You're not even really teaching, you're more of a vehicle for what comes to be pretty esoteric for a moment. What, what comes from the universe? Yeah. What chan What comes through? You're just a conduit. Yeah. Your channel, right? And there are times where I find myself teaching, and I definitely drop into that state. Yeah. It's like information just flowing through me, and that's where I feel I do my best work. Hopefully, make move the dial the most for the client. Totally, man. Because there's not, times where you're probably speaking to a room of people or speaking to the person in front of you, and 
all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, I need to take notes on this because I'm not the one saying this. <laughs> yeah. Something way smarter than me is speaking yes. through me for a moment right now. Exactly. Yeah, and you just continue to allow that to happen. Yeah. And if you maintain the daily disciplines and habits that kind of facilitate that or create that capacity, mm. then that happens more and more often. And humility grows. Yes. Because you recognize that this is not me. The same me. Yeah. You're the hollow bone. I'm just making room for it to happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Making space to allow healing to occur. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm definitely not the kind of practitioner who's got a 10 a.m. client, 11, 12, 3, 1, 2, 3, 4. Yeah. Nah, man, one or two a day. Yeah. Because uh, it takes me a, a number of hours to prepare for my work. Yeah. I don't remember. I still don't remember what else I was going to say. But anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Oh, it was great to wrap with you, man. Yeah, yeah. So, um, anything else you want to share? Yeah, I'll just repeat. So, the intensive is coming up early November. Mm -hmm. There's a few spots remaining. You can find more information at tribemenscommunity.com. Or if you want to drop me a line at savageandsaint.com. And that there's also links for my socials on that website. So, I'd be happy to hear from anybody who has any questions about what we discussed cool all right god bless you man thanks for inviting me on colby thank you so much for making the time i'm really grateful epilogue i want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment the purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull some of them through my own research and reading some of them been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society even if we disagree we ought to be able to in most cases shake hands and walk away because after all this is sport we're talking about and while sport is training for life it's nothing to get too upset over the purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment 
with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not, to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.